A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. I'm, I'm out of breath, Des. You are? Yeah, because I was just laughing so hard. We had a little laugh fest before we started the show. Desi just reminded me of the 1994 hit song, mm by the <laughs> Crash Test Dummies. Yes, that was a real song. It was on uh, MTV all the time in 1994. Yeah. It was awful, but it's also a masterpiece. It's an unbelievable creation. It's unbelievable that that song got made. Yeah. If people don't believe you when you try to explain it to them, and then they hear it, and they're like, oh, you actually did an amazing imitation. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were trying to be funny. That song is impossible to sing, especially a cappella. It's very low. Like when you're trying to explain to someone that there's a song that goes, "Mm -hmm, mm Oh. Yeah, it's even lower than that. Yeah. It's that, really hard. That was like a high-pitched version. It hurt me trying to imitate it, trying to get that low. That's why my voice is like is like I'm losing it right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, we're a little late this week because we I took, was away. Yeah, we took some time off. Um, but we're still giving you a main, just a little late. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do Patreon patrons? Oh, yeah. We had some people who donated to our Patreon this past week and a half, however long it's been. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, where they have plenty of bonus content to listen to. This week, we had Tammy, Jen, Sam, Maria, Kurt, Jen, Inga, DJ, Scott... Margriette, uh, sorry, Lindsay, Amy, Maddie, Alyssa, Liza, Christina, Tanja, Lourdes, Veronica, Becca, Michelle, Brittany, Shean, uh, Elish, Natasha, Sarah, Laura, Jennifer, Anne, Ella, Stephanie, Emily, Casey, Stephanie, Stephanie, three Stephanies. Whoa. Erica, Denise, Lindsay, Mary, Adrian, Jay, Lindsay, Ian, Carrie, Ellen, Sandia, Emily, Trisha, Anastasia, Megan, Lillian, Anna, Amberly, Zachary, Brody, Julia, Sierra, and Nancy. Wow. That was like two weeks. Yeah, that was like two weeks of patrons. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'm more out of breath than the time I sang Not Getting Married Today by Sondheim. <laughs> like, that was more yeah. of a mouthful than that song. That was a long list. So what are we doing this week, Des? So this week, we're going to get into the life of Jane Mansfield, one of the OG Hollywood blonde bimbos, often referred to as the working class Marilyn. Although she is a movie star, she's far more iconic due to her personal life and off-screen antics. Uh, she's the Hollywood Babylon cover girl. Yep. On your is that like across the board? She's on. Uh, I mean, I know it's on the one I have. She's always been on yeah. the cover of mine. And I mean, she's a she's a trash icon. I mean, and that I say that, and that's like respect <laughs> coming from me. She's got some of the most magnificent pair of titties 
you've ever seen. Yeah. They're iconic titties. Her whole her whole thing is just over the top. She's a leopard print icon. Yes. Now, uh, the majority of, um, like, the source I used was pretty much one thing. It's called um, The Tragic Secret Life of Jane Mansfield. It's a book written by Raymond Strait, who was her press secretary for 10 years. Oh. Like, pretty much her whole, like, fame. Like, so let's get into it. By the way, that book is really cheap on um, Amazon if you have a Kindle. Like if you want to do a Kindle download, it was like pretty inexpensive. So anyway, um, Jane Mansfield was born Vera Jane Palmer on April 19th, 1933 in Bryn Mawr. I don't know how to say that. Pennsylvania (laughs) to Herbert and Vera Palmer. Her parents had lost a previous baby. And so young Vera was definitely spoiled. And according to her, she was daddy's little darling. Oh, Um, Sadly, her dad died of a heart attack when he was just 33 years old, and this happened while the family was driving in a car together, supposedly laughing before he slumped over while driving. (gasps) They got out of the car, and it began to rain. Jane would later say that the rain had always been her tormentor, like, since that day. Mm. She would also say, my earliest memories are the best. I always try to remember the good times when daddy was alive. Like, she was literally, like, two to three years old when this happened. So I don't know that she had that many memories, but okay. Luckily, her mom was a teacher and was able to support herself and her daughter. From an early age, Jane was very interested in boys. She had a male cousin about her age, and they used to play I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours. That's a classic game. Classic game. She had a little playhouse in the backyard where they would be naughty. My dream was to have a playhouse. Shit always went down in playhouses. I needed that privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I really was relating to these stories from Jane as a child, and I think Rachel probably will too, because she's definitely the little girl who wanted to be thought of as a good girl, but had like a real devious streak. One of the examples that he gives in this story in this book is that she loved fudge and peanut butter, but her mom limited her access to those two things. So she like once did an elaborate heist to retrieve a jar of peanut butter from the kitchen without her mom's knowledge, and she took it into the playhouse and ate the whole jar. <laughs> That's so relatable. Now, of course, she never wanted peanut butter again after like pigging out on it. Um, she later would say that she wished all of her overindulgences were eliminated by one overdue. Sadly, Sadly not. it does not work that way. <laughs> now, another thing I have in common with Jane, we were both obsessed with Shirley Temple. <laughs> she loved Shirley Temple and she started to love to perform. Jane's mom eventually gets remarried to a man from Texas named Harry Tex Piers. She describes him as the sl- strong and silent type and he was very strict, but she loved his strict discipline. <laughs> That was like for I think when like little girls, at least when I was a little girl, it was like the best compliment you could get when someone would be like, You look just like Shirley Temple. Yeah. Like I was told that when I was I mean, I did not look like, but I had very curly hair, like those big right. naturally curly hair. I think they see curls and they're just immediately. Yeah, they're yeah. like, you have little Shirley Temple curls. Right. I mean, you kind of knew that was like an idealized, perfect little child, like little girl or yeah. something. Uh, so Jane was a very manipulative child, and she learned early on to pit the adults in her life against each other, including her grandparents, making them fight to be her favorite grandparent. Damn, Jane. <laughs> she even took to calling one of them fat grandma when that grandma stepped out of line. <laughs> 
How old was she? She's like under 10. That's so rude calling your grandma Seriously. Fat. Now, she also eventually wins over Tex, her stepdad, and he asks her if he could officially be her daddy, and she agreed. This meant a new grandma who was also a seamstress and spoiled Jane with fluffy dresses. The best. My dream. Mm-hmm. Now, when she was about nine, Jane describes jumping naked with other kids around in her neighborhood trying to catch fireflies, and that's when she noticed what she called her angel wings were jumping with her. <laughs> Rachel, do you know what her angel wings were? <laughs> oh, no. Her little boobs. <laughs> That's what she called her boobs. She her angel's them angel wings. wings when she was a kid. Yes, that's so disturbing because it sounds like something like a molester would say. Like, yeah, I see your little angel wings are starting to grow. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of. Like, who told her that? I have no idea, but that's what happened. Uh, so her mom saw this happening in the front yard and told her after that that she had to always wear a t-shirt and then the bra followed soon after. Now, Jane also developed a lot of fears and obsessions as a child. Obviously, death was one. I think almost every kid has a little bit of that. She was also afraid of travel traveling and she was obsessed with cold things like ice creams and drinks and she needed her orange juice to be fresh squeezed. And that's something that would stay with her for the rest of her life. So she always had that star demand as a child even. Uh, I actually really like fresh squeezed orange juice. Like I don't really like non-fresh squeezed orange juice. Yeah, it's the best. It's so much better. Like I'll have it, but I I don't like buy it really. Um, So she was also obsessed with pets from a very early age and she would give them elaborate funerals when they died. She also was obsessed with having stuffed animals and that's something she also kept into adulthood. So Jane Mansfield is one of those adult women who has a stuffed animal collection. We all know the type. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... Jane's rapid development was also causing her problems. Her mom had a similar figure, but really hit it and even strapped her boobs down because she grew up in a time where big boobs were considered vulgar. The problem with Jane's figures weren't only with men making advances. Jane also speaks of young girls her own age being obsessed with Jane's body. She said that she had an early experience at a slumber party where one of the other girls kept trying to hug her close, which made Jane uncomfortable. She had described that this, an incident with this same girl following her into the bathroom when Jane got her period in school and trying to make out with her in the bathroom stall. Holy shit. Yeah. So obviously that made her very uncomfortable and throughout her life, she would be uncomfortable with affection from women. I think she had a weird relationship with her mom as well because her mom was sort of like jealous of Jane And also wanted to keep her from being sexual. It was like a weird kind of relationship like that. Now, at this point, Jane's mom also gave her a book about the birds and the bees called Growing Up, which Jane said led to her intense desire to become a mom. By the time she was 12, Jane became obsessed with movies and movie stars, and her mom kind of indulged this obsession. She signed Jane up for ballroom dance lessons when she was 14, and around the same time, the whole family took a trip to Hollywood And Jane recalls standing on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, very close to where we are, and declaring, like saying out loud that one day this town will be mine. (laughs) Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. A little snag happens at this point. When Jane is 17, she gets knocked up and she marries a man named Paul Mansfield on May 6, 1950. Their daughter, Jane Marie Mansfield, is born six months later on November 8th. Now, there are rumors that this is a was the result of a date rape by another man. But in the book I read, they say it was a guy Jane really was in love with, but she chose Paul instead because he had more potential and he was also madly in love with her at the time. So that seemed true because this guy seems like he would have gone down a more seedy route if it was like for his juicy memoir, right? Now, in 1951, she moves to L.A. for the summer to study acting at UCLA, but is back in Austin with her husband in the fall. She studies acting there at the University of Texas at Austin. She also starts doing nude art modeling, and she also starts entering beauty pageants. Mansfield wins several beauty contests, including Miss Photo Flash, Miss Magnesium Lamp, Miss Fire Prevention Week, and one that she refused to take, Rachel, that was called Miss Roquefort Cheese. <laughs> she said she I just would, didn't think it sounded right. It doesn't sound right, but I would love to be Miss Any Kind of Cheese. That was like my favorite one until I heard another one she rejected, which was Miss Prime Rib. <laughs> Miss Prime Rib. You are Miss Prime Rib. I am. I do not reject that title, Jane. Now, in 1953, uh, they leave Austin and move back to Dallas. She um, becomes an acting student of Baruch Lumet, who is the father of director Sidney Lumet. And he had some kind of Dallas Institute of Performing Arts. She is a student with Rip Torn. And he's like... That those are his top two students, like his boy and girl star students. He actually helps Jane get her first screen test at Paramount in April of 1954 when her family moves to L.A. Now, early in her career, advertisers, like she got, she got a like modeling agency, the Blue Book Modeling Agency, which I feel like we've talked about on some other shows. 
Um, but ad- advertisers d- considered her prominent breasts very undesirable. And she actually lost some gigs, um, including a big one for General Electric that had women in bathing suits around the pool because it was just too distracting. They were just so fucking massive. Now, in 1954, she takes that audition at Paramount Pictures that Lumet got her. She performs a um, scene from Joan of Arc, which is like a very dramatic play by George Bernard Shaw. It's not exactly what Paramount is looking for, especially when she walks in like this huge, big titted, (laughs) kind of sexy, you know what I mean? It just kind of didn't match up for them. Um, They didn't, they weren't impressed with her acting skills, but they did say if she wanted any chance of making it, she should go blonde. So it's at this point that she goes from dark brown to platinum blonde. Now, a little bit of the um, backtrack, I'm going to like go off here and talk about the times. So... Obviously, we're in this era of the 1950s when blonde bombshells are all the rage. You have, obviously, Marilyn Monroe, Betty Grable, Mamie Van Doren, um, Jean Harlow kind of started it all off. So this is like the look to have during this time period. Obviously, this is combined with a very curvy figure and a perceived lack of intelligence. Now, Mansfield always claims that she had a very high IQ. She said it was 163. She said that she spoke four languages. Um, She said that she was Hollywood's smartest dumb blonde and complained that the public did not care about her brain, saying they're more interested in 40, 21, 35. Mansfield, Monroe, um, and like all of those types have been described also as being like this juncture in cinema that combined sexuality and comedy. Like that was sort of like a big thing um, and just sort of big in pop culture at the time. Uh, it was kind of moving on from this period where it was like virginal nice girls of like earlier years. Now it was all about these blonde bombshells in the 1950s. A social historian named Joan Jacobs Rumberg describes the 1950s as an era distinguished by its worship of full-breasted women. Um, another person said that this this also kind of combines with Playboy's launch. Um, so this sort of era is coming together, you know, nicely, uh, especially with someone hurt with her body. Now she had like an insane body, as I mentioned. Her measurements before were like bust is 40, her waist is like 20 in the low 20s. And her hips are like, whatever, 36. Um, Her body measurements are literally always published in early stories about her. Like, that's her primary factor. Billy Graham, uh, the evangelist, sorry, he said at some point, this country knows more about Jane Mansfield's statistics than the the second commandment. What a nerd. (laughs) Now... What a loser. <laughs> She's also called the cleavage queen, the queen of sex and bosom. Like, I love these, like, it's like you had to just give everyone a title even when you ran out of good ones. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, so her bust obviously fluctuates a lot because she gets pregnant and it goes up to like 46 double D in some instances. And she's about five, six. So she is like an average height. So she had this insanely ba 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 figure, right? Like, ba ba boom That's what I was going for. But I was like, bum chicka bum bum like, like, <laughs> You sound like the big bopper over there. Uh, well, can I just, I'm going to just Wait. say this right now. She covers uh, Chantilly <laughs> She does a recording. Oh, okay. We have to hear it at some point. Okay, good. Um, so... 
her bosom is so like iconic that she is like a major force behind the development of bras in the 1950s, including ones called the World Whirlpool Bra, the Shutter Bra. Like all these type of bras are designed to kind of have a bust like her. Uh yeah, I mean, so she's also responsible for popularizing the bikini with a few other actresses. Um, a sociologist from the time describes Mansfield and Monroe's breasts as looming across the horizon of popular consciousness. I mean, it's just like the whole thing is like whatever. It's this period, and then it ends very dramatically in the 60s with Audrey Hepburn and Twiggy and like that kind of body style becoming popular. Now, she's also... Um, was really compared to Marilyn Monroe initially when she came out. And at that point, a lot of studios, every studio is trying to find their Marilyn Monroe. Like, so all of those people we've talked about, Mamie Van Doren, Diana Doors, like all of these people are sort of like each studio's attempt to find their own Marilyn uh, Monroe. So at one point, Monroe, Mansfield, and Mamie were known as the three M's. They were kind of like the top three, I think, um, as far as that type goes. Now, by 1955, Jane was landing small parts, but it really took off in February of 1955 when she was named Playboy Playmate of the Month. So that was like her big splash. Um, Her career was taking off, but her marriage was in shambles. The family were living in a small apartment in Van Nuys, Los Angeles with their daughter, Jane, and her pets. This is a small apartment, her pets, a Great Dane, three cats named Sabina, Romulus, and Ophelia, two chihuahuas, chihuahuas, a poodle that was dyed pink, and a rabbit. And a small apartment, Rachel. Damn. (laughs) After a series of huge fights that were sort of around Jane's ambitions, her infidelities, and the animals, uh, her and her husband, Paul, decide to get divorced. In the book, she says that Hollywood broke up their marriage, um, and when she moved to Hollywood, she does admit she became a real bitch. That's her quote. I'm not saying it. I think she was feeling frustrated. She's kind of stuck at home as a mom. She wanted to go audition and do stuff, and she felt like, I've been here four years, and nothing's happened, right. uh, et cetera. Now, in August of 1956, Paul Mansfeld, he seeks custody of his daughter, alleging that Jane is a bad mom because she appeared in Playboy. She ends up keeping the daughter, um, but she pretty much hires a babysitter to stay with her kid all the time so she could go pound the pavement trying to get acting work. Now, she really starts showing her knack for publicity at this time. One thing she does is call a Hollywood studio and talks to the secretary, and she's like, this is Jane Mansfield. I'm here to become a movie star, and I thought I might give you the first right of refusal. Now, the secretary is so stunned by this bold move that she actually has Jane come in, and Jane bombs at the audition, but it was like this sort of like... She kind of started making a name for herself. She also hooks up with a publicist at this time named Jim Byron, and they're like a publicity whore match made in heaven. Like They both had the same goal. They would do anything to get fucking publicity. One thing he does is take Jane to newsrooms during Christmas time where they're all just the certain people who didn't go home, so they're like working during Christmas, and they're all miserable. And he kind of like had them, her win over these toughened newsmen who were working over the holidays. And once she did that, they all started putting her picture in local LA papers. Um, so that was like her first big victory. From that, she lands a spot on a plane to a press junket for the Howard Hughes, Jane Russell um, movie called Underwater. I don't really know what the movie's about, but it's it's Jane Russell basically in a bikini. And she also has huge, huge boobs too. <laughs> 
Now, while she's in Florida, she is at a press event in a pool in a bikini and she puts on a too small bikini top and does the classic trick where you go underwater and you come out and your top falls off. <laughs> Obviously, the press are all there and take tons of photos of her. Um, by the time she returns to LA, all the papers are asking, who is Jane Mansfield? <laughs> now, all of this publicity finally pays off and Jane lands a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. And they're basically, it's like her publicity is what is intra- like attractive to them. They have no idea if she's a good actress or, or not. Uh, this contract is short-lived. Um, she basically gets this part in a Broadway play called Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter that stars Orson Bean and Walter Matthau. Once she's announced to be the star of this Broadway play, she gets dropped by Warner Brothers within the same month. Now, she is basically about to become a huge Broadway star, but obviously she's not happy about it. She wants to be a big movie star, but this will lead to one of her most successful roles when when the movie version of this play is made a few a few years later. Now, What happens here that is very significant, though, in addition to the play, is that she meets her second husband, Mickey Hargitay, who is a former Mr. Universe. Um, They meet at the Latin Quarter nightclub, which is like a huge, cool nightclub in that era in New York City. Uh, He's in New York at the time um, as one of Mae West hunky chorus boys in one of her shows. He looks, Mickey Hargitay looked like an action figure. Yeah, he has that old school bodybuilder look. Like he's greasy, yeah, and muscly, but not in like that overly bulging vein way that it is now. Like it was that old school Jack LaLanne. <laughs> Do you know oh, what I'm talking about? Totally. It's like a more natural big muscle. He's just hulking though. Yeah. So Jane was horny for him the minute he like walked into the Latin Quarter Club. They started hooking up almost immediately. May was fucking pissed. She did not like this blonde bitch coming into her like wheelhouse and like taking one of her guys. Uh, Jane sort of picked up on this feud with May and she made headlines when someone asked her about May and she said, I don't know, like when is the last time anyone asked for her, asked her for a pic in a bikini? So Oi. she started dunking on May, you know, whatever, is quite older at this point. She's aging at that point. Yeah. So May is pissed. She hates Jane. And another person is not very happy about Mickey and Jane's canoodling. And that's Mickey's wife, Mary. So, yeah, he's married at this time as well. I don't think that's May's problem, though. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mickey does at some point tell Mary privately that he wants a divorce, whatever. I have no idea what their relationship was like. She accepts it more than May does, who is not having it. May holds a press conference in which she demands Mickey go up on stage or whatever in front of the mics and denounce his relationship with Jane. He seems like he's going to agree to do this, but during the press conference, all hell breaks loose when Mickey defies May and declares publicly that he and Jane are in love and are discussing marriage. (laughs) Now, when he does this, one of May's other boys who was there like escorting her takes a swing at him. He's a former Mr. California. He beats up Mickey Hargitay and is arrested and released on $300 bond, which is like $3,000 today. Um, so an auspicious start and highly indicative of what their turbulent relationship is going to be like going forward. 20th Century Fox signs Mansfield to a six-year contract uh, in 1956. Um, and they're basically at this point fed up with Marilyn Monroe, who just filmed bus stop and was like notoriously kind of difficult on that film set. So they're kind of hiring her to be like 
to put Marilyn in her place. Like, we don't need you anymore. We have Jane Mansfield. But she's, you know, has to finish out her contract on Broadway before she gets back to L.A. It's during this time that she also gets really into astrology and had a close relationship with an astrologer named David Sturgis. He predicts that the peak of her career will be from 1956 to 1962, which later turns out to be like highly accurate and exactly the peak of her fame. Now, under her contract with 20th, 20th Century Fox, she gets her first starring film role as Jerry Jordan in the movie The Girl Can't Help It, which is like a rock and roll, like tons of contemporary rock and roll and R&B artists are in this movie. Do you know this movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has like a really good theme song. I think that was sampled. Was it sampled in like a Fergie song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's released in 1956, in December of 1956. It's a huge, like one of the year's biggest successes, both critically and financially. It actually earns more than Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, like a Marilyn Monroe acts, you know, huge hit. Fox starts promoting Mansfield as Marilyn Monroe, king-sized. Um, and they're just, they're still kind of using Jane to manipulate Marilyn at this point, but they do recognize that she is a big star in her own right. Um, she gets a part in a dramatic role in one of their movies and wins a Golden Globe in 1957 for a new star of the year, beating out Carol Baker and Natalie Wood. She's next cast in the film version of her Broadway show, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter? And she takes on her role again and, and co-stars with Tony Randall. Um, from that movie, Fox puts her on a blonde bombshell uh, North American tour, which is like a 40-day tour and throughout Europe as well to kind of promote her as this new star and for the movie. Now, Mickey and Jane are finally able to get married in 1958, and it's around the same time that Jane buys what will become known as the Pink Palace, a Spanish-style mansion in Holmby Hills section of Los Angeles, which is like a very rich neighborhood. Now, In 1954, Mansfield had already adopted pink as her signature color, and she's pretty much associated with that for the rest of her career. Her original choice was purple, but she thought it was too close to lavender, which was Kim Novak's signature color. (laughs) Jane said, it must have been the right decision because I got more space, column space from pink than Kim Novak ever did from lavender. I love that competition competition of your signature color. I didn't even know Kim Novak had a signature. I didn't either, but I looked Kim Novak and Lavender up and there's a shitload of pictures. So I don't know how much she considered it her signature color, but maybe she just wore it for a few years. No idea. Now, I'm sure we'll post some pictures of this home because the Pink Palace is insane. It's like a small Madonna Inn kind of place. I'm obsessed with Jane Mansfield's decor. It, I was looking at pictures of it today and I like screamed at each image. Like some of the rooms I just, some of the things are just, I mean, it's a 40 room Mediterranean style mansion. It was formerly owned by Rudy Valet and it's on Sunset Boulevard, basically kind of by Beverly Hills area uh, over there. It's where Hugh Hefner lived. Yeah. Now she, like it's a Spanish style. So it's like that typical kind of like whatever, ecru, tannish color. She paints the house pink. There's Cupid surrounded by pink fluorescent lights, pink fur in the bathrooms, a pink heart-shaped bathtub, a fountain spurting pink champagne. Uh, as I said, she dubs it the Pink Palace. Hargitay, who before he took up bodybuilding, was a plumber and carpenter. He builds the, the pink heart-shaped swimming pool in the backyard. Um, I mean, it's just fucking... It's amazing. Uh, She even gets like a pink Cadillac Eldorado at some point, and it's the only pink Cadillac in Hollywood. Like, so she's just like 
hardcore. She's like OG Angeline. Yes. Now, when they do get married in January of 1958, they do it at this chapel that's all glass, so the public viewing was able to see everything inside. She wears a pink skin-tight wedding gown made of sequins with a 30-yard um, t- pink tulle like flounce at the back. Uh, and her and Hargitay drink pink champagne at the ceremony. This so, is commitment to a bit. <laughs> look, <laughs> she fucking went with it. But, I mean, I do like pink. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be obsessed with a color, it's a pretty good one. Now, the couple, they're both publicity, like how, like they fucking love publicity. So it is a good marriage as far as that goes as well. They do all these like team touring, like touring state, like stage shows. Um, they have this bit where she's in a leopard bikini and he like tosses her around and picks her up by her waist because he's really fucking strong and she's like little tiny thing. Um, I mean, she's like, tiny even though she's curvy you know so they do these uh, appearances as a couple on bob hope christmas specials and they have business to, businesses together including hargitay's exercise equipment company <laughs> which made me laugh because it's like they're like og in, like instagram influencers or something yeah now they write a book together like an autobiography of the couple together and everything's going great. They have two boys at this point, too, Mickey Jr. and a son named Zoltan. Zoltan. <laughs> yes, Zoltan. That's, that's like very close to the uh, the guy who grants wish. Yes. Wishes What's his name in Zoltar. Big? <laughs> Seriously, Zoltan. Okay. Now, James' publicity start stunts do start wearing thin, though. On June of that year, her dress falls down to the waist twice in a single evening, once at a movie party and later at a nightclub. In February of 1958, she's at a Mardi Gras party in Rio, and she, you know, her she accidentally shimmies out of her polka dot dress. Like, I mean, it's just like her tits are always falling out. Uh, you'd think she'd do something about it if it wasn't intentional, but it's intentional. Um, she she's basically like the most controversial star of that era. Like she's just like always in the news. Now, a very famous image is from April of 1957. She's at a party that's honoring Sophia Loren. Um, Photographs of them are published around the world. And the best known one is one that shows Sophia Loren's gaze falling on Jane Mansfield's cleavage as she leans over the table where her tits are spilling out over the neckline and one nipple is exposed. Very famous photo. I'm sure most of you have seen it. This, this photo becomes like whatever the wire on the wire. Cause that's how news is back then. Like that photo goes fucking everywhere. It's in newspapers and magazines around the world, obviously censoring the nipple. <laughs> it's an, it's such an iconic photo. Well, one of the reasons that picture is so iconic is because of the way Sir Sophia Loren is looking at Jane. Oh, Mansfield. totally. It's such a, like, it really says it all. Like, it's also just like these two types of people, like they're so different and right. how they, I, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a great photo. Um, we can post it. At the same time, um, the media do start to kind of start poo-pooing Mansfield stunts. One editorial columnist wrote, we are amused when Miss Mansfield strains to pull into her stomach to fill out her bikini better, but we get angry when career-seeking women, shady ladies, and certain starlets and actresses use every opportunity to display their anatomy like unmasked. 
Um, so she starts to get a little negative um, publicity for these wardrobe accidents. Mr. Blackwell, who famously did those 10 best and 10 worst dress list, he was her wardrobe designer at the time. He drops her from his client list because of all of this wardrobe malfunctions, uh, etc. He's like, I don't want my polka dot dress on the floor. Seriously. I didn't know he was really a designer or like he dressed stars even. I don't think I really know what he did. Someone in uh, the Los Angeles Times wrote at some point, she confuses publicity and notoriety with stardom and celebrity, and the result is very distasteful to the public. This is like such a classic thing where people love something and then immediately turn on it for no reason, really. Even it's like she didn't change. Right. Like, it's like you created it, and now because you're, you're annoyed with it. Or something new came out, or whatever the reason. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a classic uh, turnaround. Especially if it's a woman who's like, naked a lot. Right. People get really angry at that. Right. Now, as I mentioned, it's like now we're getting into the 60s. Her career is sort of declining, as is the sort of want of this big breasted blonde bombshell that's that's just sort of getting out as well. She hasn't really had a box office hit in the early 60s at all. She's still a very popular uh, celebrity, however, and she starts doing like nightclub acts and touring around. She does a big show at the Tropicana in Vegas that was like a huge sellout. Uh, she doesn't really have any good film roles coming her way at all. Fox stops viewing her as a major Hollywood star and starts lending her out to foreign productions until her contract runs out, basically. I think that was a typical thing to do. She does two movies. Um, I think they're English studios and Italian studios. The first one is called Too Hot to Handle. In that, Mansfield wears a silver netting sequence painted over her nipples and appears nearly nude. She also does a movie called Promises, Promises. Uh, Playboy publishes nude photographs of her on the set, resulting in obscenity charges against Hugh Hefner in a Chicago court. Now, this movie gets banned in Cleveland, Ohio. It does have some box office success elsewhere. This is the movie where she's nude. Like, she's the first star to do, like, nudity in a um, film with this movie, Promises, Promises. In an American film. Now... As I mentioned, she has this Tropicana Las Vegas show that was pretty, pretty big hit. It's sort of a striptease type review. It's called the Tropicana Holiday. She, uh, her husband co-stars with her in it. They're still uh, going strong. Her her wardrobe in this show <laughs> features a gold mesh dress with sequins to cover just her nipples and pubic region. And obviously, it's a very controversial dress, but gets people into the show uh, quite nicely. Now, she continues doing these shows in Vegas throughout the 60s, but she's no longer at the Tropicana. Rachel, she's on Fremont Street. (laughs) Oh, no. Which was a real downgrade. Not Fremont Street. (laughs) I will tell you, Desi, every time I go to Vegas, I stay on Fremont Street. I know. I mean, I think it's different nowadays, but for her level of star, it was like, oh, I'm not on the strip. I'm like... I'm downtown. I'm downtown. Now... It's during one of these uh, lower level shows. She gets busted fucking a chorus boy. She also drops that publicist she had for a very long time around the same time. And it's sort of the beginning of her career really going kaput and her marriage to Mickey just fucking going downhill. Now, Mickey forgives her for fucking this chorus boy. And Jane, this is like such a bitch move in a way. She's like, I lost all respect for him when he forgave me. (laughs) What the fuck? She's like, I can't fuck this simp. 
She also begins taking uppers to keep her weight down, uh, and she claims she got down to an 18-inch waist. Jesus. That is insane. Is that even possible? That's what I thought. If you're not a child? I mean, I guess with like waist cinchers, you could probably do stuff like that, but obviously it's very unhealthy because even a 23-inch waist is fucking small. Like, yeah, that's tiny. Like, so... She also begins drinking and she's really short tempered at this time because she's on fucking speed. Like, yeah. So she pretty much fucking hates Mickey. Like anytime he enters the room, she's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like there's stories in the board where he just like literally walks and she's like, I thought I told you to get the fuck out. <laughs> like, so she's classic bad tempered speed uh, combination. Now her, as I mentioned, her publicity stunts are backfiring. She's still doing them. Like she goes to Berlin and Mickey lifts her up to eat grapes and her tits pop out of her dress. I think she should have varied it a bit. Like maybe that would have helped a little bit. Done less tit popping out. You know what she should have (laughs) done? Let me, let me finish. You know what she should have done for variation is she should have had like his Mickey's dick pop out. That would have been quite a scandal. No, because everyone would have been looking at her tits and then someone like a paparazzi would be like, ah, exactly. Uh, So she starts moving. uh, She starts doing some European movie, Italian movie called Panic Button. And she has an affair that's pretty much open with the director uh, or actually the producer of this movie. And his name is Enrico Bamba. Jane says after making wild love to Bamba on a sofa, she could never be satisfied with Mickey again. Jesus. Now, Mickey senses that they're having this affair and he comes to the set of Panic Button. She has him barred from the set so he can't interfere (laughs) in anything that she's doing. She also convinces Mickey and Enrico to all go out together. And she's hoping that Mickey will beat him up and that will be like a huge publicity like stunt or something like that. But Mickey just gets disgusted with them and leaves. You know what they kind of remind me of right now is uh, Spencer Pratt and Heidi. Oh God. Like that's all she does. Like is try to get publicity and like stage these things. Yeah. Uh, She files for divorce on May 4th, 1962, but tells reporters, I'm sure we'll make it up. Now, they really begin some acrimonious divorce proceedings. At some point, she's she's really trying to get a better financial settlement, and she accuses him of kidnapping one of their children. Uh, she's really devastated in August of 62 when Marilyn Monroe dies and her relationship with Bamba falls apart. That's where she really descends into alcohol abuse Like during this period. She gets super depressed. Obviously, she has like this connection to Marilyn and seeing what happened to her. Her career's in the toilet, and her relationship with this guy is also fucking bombing. So she probably senses I'm going down the same depressing road. Now, uh, she also starts getting paranoid in the book that I read. The guy who wrote it was her, I mentioned he was like her, whatever, public relations guy. He said that she started accusing him of spying for Mickey and stuff like that. So she also starts getting a little paranoid. Now, in 1963, she begins another well-publicized affair or relationship with a singer named Nelson Sardelli, who she says she will marry as soon as her divorce from Mickey Hargitay is finalized. The author of this book tells this insane story, by the way, <laughs> where uh, like he walks into Jane's dressing room or apartment or something, and she's completely naked. 
Uh, she says that a guy had yelled out to her at some point at a show that she had black roots. So he walks in on her completely naked and she's standing there with black pubes and she's really upset about her black pubes. This guy, by the way, she nicknamed Coos because he called her a cunt one time and she's like, well, you're a Coos. <laughs> so she starts calling him Coos affectionately from here on out. Her publicist? Yes. She calls him Coos. So she's like, Coos, you have to shave me. <laughs> shave me because she's like I can't I'm too afraid of shaving my pussy now he's shaving her pussy when her boyfriend Nelson walks in on the scene of him shaving (laughs) shaving his girlfriend's pussy and Jane says to him oh it's nothing Coos is just shaving my snatch (laughs) (laughs) Uh, now Mickey and uh, Jane get divorced in Juarez, Mexico in May of 1963. And Nelson is actually there like to help her with the divorce. He's, he's like, very he's, eager. He's like that Judge Judy Giffrey. He's like, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Now, after she gets this Mexican divorce, she discovers that she's pregnant. She does not want to be an unwed mother because she thinks it will be bad for her career. So she and Mickey announced that they're technically still married, which is true. Mariska Hargitay is born January 23rd, 1964, after the actual divorce in Juarez, but before California has ruled it valid. So it's like some delay that made her, I don't know, whatever, not illegitimate or and something. And Mickey's child. Yes. Now... She, uh, so once Mariska is born, they kind of make sure the divorce is finalized. So it's just like a legal technicality they were going for. Mansfield does eventually go on television talk shows after all of this and says she is sorry for all the trouble she gave Mickey. So I think that was sort of her real true love uh, after it all ends. Now in 1964, she is offered a really big part that she turns down, and that is the part of Ginger on Gilligan's Island. Wow. Yes. So she felt that it epitomized the stereotype that she was trying to rid herself of and turn down the role that went that went to Tina Louise. I, I am always baffled by that. It's like, what career do you think you have going forward? Like, why not do it? Like, right. who cares? Get some fucking money. That would have, like, completely revived her career. Oh, my God. How long was that show on the air for? For years, right? I don't know. It feels like it was on for 40 years, but, <laughs> but it was in syndication. Like, she probably would have made a shit ton of money. Like, yeah. I don't know how long it was on, but I bet you at least six years, right? I mean, right. I have no idea. Now, at this time, she becomes involved with another Italian-born film director named, his name is originally Matteo Ottaviano, but he goes by Matt Simber. He directs her in a stage production of Bus Stop that co-stars Mickey Hargitay. She marries him on September 24th, 1964. Hold up. She co-stars in a play with her ex-husband? Yes, yes. Because they still were using that relationship as like to get people in the theater. Like, Right. So basically the director of this play is like, this shit show is going to draw in a big audience. Yeah, it's kind of like when ex-wives and husbands used to do that play Love Letters. Like there was some play with an, a couple and they would always get like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, like people who were married. It was like a publicity stunt it's to get people in. part of the draw. Yeah, absolutely. This is also around the time she did Chantilly Lace. I just have that in my notes. Chantilly Lace. <laughs> we have to listen to <laughs> so it. So she cut an album or like a song? She did a lot of, she, look, her like list, like if you go to her Wikipedia, she has so much stuff. I just can't detail it because it's kind of boring. She did like a ton of recordings. She did a ton of nightclubs. 
um, TV stuff. So she did do kind of all this stuff, but it was really petering out at this point and started getting less and less sort of lucrative. Uh, she also started, and I, I can't remember if it's her last movie, but it's her last big one, um, a movie called Las Vegas Hillbillies. <laughs> this that's, co-starred. that's the last big one. <laughs> yes, and it's not that big. It co-starred Mamie Van Doren, so they're both sort of like slumming here. Now, she, before filming, Mansfeld said that she would not share any screen time with the drive-in's answer to Marilyn Monroe, meaning Van Doren. Holy shit. So their character's... Did share one scene, but Mansfeld and Van Doren filmed their parts at different time, times, and then it was edited together later. Like, that's pretty wow. ballsy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The highlight of her marriage for me to when she was married to Matt was at some point they're on the road doing like a touring production of something. And one of her chihuahuas named Galena dies and she gives it an elaborate funeral, including a full press court. Like all the press are at this funeral who are, and they're looking on an astonishment uh, as a bronze casket is driven to the graveyard in a Bentley and has this chihuahua in it. She has last rites given to the chihuahua before it's entered into the ground. I'm sorry. I don't think she's, there's anything weird about this, does She's wearing huge black sunglasses, and when she gives last rites to the to the dog, after the press sort of like looked confused, she said she was Catholic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but honestly, like I said before, I don't see anything weird about this. Okay, because my cat is absolutely Jewish. I guess, but why would you pick Catholic? Jewish is. <laughs> It passes down through the mother, and I'm she's the mother. not Jew. She's not Catholic. Wait, Jane. Jane's not even Catholic. She briefly tries to be Catholic, but she doesn't do it. So this is just like an aesthetic choice. Yes. Now Jane is getting seriously fucked up at this point. Matt, her husband, legitimately begins to fear for his life. They fight nonstop. She's really neglecting her children and her pets. Your cat's like in between my legs. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm like, woo. A cousin of Matt's tells the author, at some point he gets a call from Matt late at night that Jane was trying to kill him and had cut him very badly. Oh my God. He begs his cousin to call the police on Jane. Uh, she eventually passes out. And when the police arrive, Matt is wearing a shredded t-shirt and he's covered in blood. He tells the police that he fell down the stairs and, and the next day Jane has no memory of what happened. And this sort of begins her blackout drunk period. She starts doing this a lot where she has zero memory. Um, luckily Jane gets pregnant and it actually does stop her drunking, 
uh, drugging and drinking or at least limits it in some way. So she gives birth to their son, Tony, in October of 1965. Now, that did not save the marriage, um, and it actually led to a super long, nasty fucking divorce. This is how Jane would meet Sam Brody, who was her divorce lawyer. Now, this the divorce drags out for a while because Matt really wants custody of Tony, and Jane is like, "Fuck no!" And it's purely she's not a she's not like a good mom at this point. Like, right? She should not be fighting for this, but it's definitely like I'm not letting you win. Uh, Sam and Jane hatch a plan to accuse Matt of basically molesting her sons. Whoa. Yes. Now, it gets sicker. They pre-write a statement about homosexual play with Mickey Jr. and Zoltan and try to get Jane's teenage daughter, Jane Marie, to sign it. So they write the statement from Jane Marie, and they're like, just sign this statement for us. She refuses to do it. At that point, Sam threatens her that she'll be sent away forever if she doesn't help her mom, like, get custody of Tony, uh, but she still doesn't do it. Now they get another person they know drunk, really drunk, and he signs the statement. Then they get him to sign another statement while he's drunk so they can blackmail him if he tries to recant the other statement. In the other statement, they get him to say that he had gay sex with Matt and had also fondled the boys with him. Holy shit. Yeah, isn't that fucked up? Wow. Now, this guy, his name is Greg Tyler. He sobers up and he's like, no, I'm fucking no. Like, I don't fucking care. Like, he goes to the FBI about it. And the FBI began monitoring Jane and Sam and all of her friends. Like, because of this, like, whatever they're doing is fucking illegal. Yeah. So, despite all of this, Jane gets custody of Tony. Like, there, there was one thing I read where the judge actually scolded Jane Marie, Jane's daughter, for testifying against her mom. Like, that's just, like, it's disgusting. It just goes, I mean, it's just a weird period where I think moms just had so much, like, more rights to get in custody, even extreme examples like this. So her and Sam, she gets the um, custody of her son. What does she do? She doesn't spend time with her son. (laughs) She goes and parties at La Scala with Sam, uh, who is basically her belligerent alcoholic match made in hell, like, she parties at La Scala? Yes. Like a, eating the chopped salad? Yeah. They go to La Scala and have like a victory party for custody and get fucking trashed and wasted together. <laughs> now, there's this really funny story. At some point, she goes on a trip to Vegas and she goes to see a Don Rickles uh, show and she's sitting there with two hunky guys and he like dunks on her. <laughs> He's like, oh, look, it's the old blonde bombshell with her two Latin lovers. Like some mild dunk, and she's like mortified, right? Because she's already feeling old. Like you know, she's like thirty three, right? Uh, and at the same trip, a reporter talks to her about having a teenage daughter, and she's like, she says something lighthearted, like, "Oh, you could be a grandma soon." Now Jane fucking panics at this because she's obviously doesn't want to be a grandma. She's like in her thirties. She also is like, "Is there some? Is is my daughter pregnant?" She sends her daughter to her parents back in Texas and forces them to have her tested to see if she's pregnant. Holy shit! Yeah. So the doctor is like, uh, "She's not pregnant, but she's really emotionally fucked up. Like she needs help. Like this child is not doing well." So. Yeah, it kind of backfires on Jane because her parents are like, what's going on, et cetera. Now, at the same time, Jane and Matt around this time, they sort of begin their process to get divorced. This is July 20th, 1966. Now, 
she's really degenerated into alcoholism. She's having tons of drunken brawls and she's performing at these cheap burlesque shows at this point. By July, the same month, she starts living with her attorney, Sam Brody. Uh, They're just a mess. They have tons of drunken brawls. The daughter is back with them, Jane Marie, and they don't really treat her that well. Sam's wife at the time, he's married, Beverly Brody, she files for divorce and she names Mansfield the 41st other women, other woman in the divorce petition. So there were 40, <laughs> 41 women that this-, this guy fucked before Jane. Holy shit. So he's uh, a piece of work as well. Now, on November 23rd, 1966, Mansfield's son, Zoltan, makes news when a lion named Sammy attacks him and bites his neck while he and his mother are visiting the theme park Jungle Land USA in Thousand Oaks, California. <laughs> he suffers, I'm not laughing at the injuries, but it's just kind of so Tiger King. It's like there was a jungle land in Thousand Oaks. Like there was a tiger park that kids were like going. It was like fucking Tiger King. Where you could actually... You could touch tigers in Thousand Oaks in the 60s. He's pretty severely injured. He suffers a head trauma. He has to... the lion bit him on the head? Yes, the lion bit him in the neck. Like... Jesus. I know. He goes to a hospital in Ventura, California. He has a six-hour brain surgery. Like, he is, a, he is a mess. Now, they eventually, like, sue this theme park, by the way, and it leads to the closure of the park. Now, while Zoltan is recovering in the hospital, he also gets meningitis, by the <gasps> way. So this kid just keeps getting one thing after the other. Sam and Jane live in a room, in, like, adjacent to his hospital room to, like, whatever, stay with him. While they're there, they drop LSD in the room next to the son's hospital. Yes, Rachel. Oh, no. So they drop LSD and go on a fucking bender, boozing, popping uppers. At some point, Jane is walking around naked in her room, and the nurses, like, shut the door. because they're like, what the fuck is going on? So is this connected to the hospital? Yes, they're in a hospital in an adjacent room with their sick son having a fucking bender part, like, tripping on LSD and drinking and fucking fighting. This isn't, like, an apartment that they're renting No, it is in a hospital where (laughs) nurses are working and walking around the hallways. (laughs) Okay, they're tripping balls. At some point, Jane starts screaming and runs out of the room saying that Sam is trying to kill her. I'm sorry, Desi. <laughs> I've done a lot. I've done a lot of stupid things on drugs, but the last thing I would want to do is drop acid in a hospital. While your son is like no, on death's door. I, I don't care what the cir- <laughs> I, I don't care what the circumstances are. Dropping acid in a hospital sounds like the least fun ever. Can you imagine? I don't even know, but it's like, maybe it's so wrong. It's like funny. (laughs) I have no idea. Like That's a horrible idea. I I just, yeah, it's all bad. Okay. Right into the show, HollywoodCrimeScene at gmail.com. If you've ever tripped balls in a hospital before, (laughs) not on the drugs that they gave you. Like you went to visit someone and you were high on mushrooms or acid or peyote. I wouldn't doubt that someone did it and then some emergency happened and they had to go to the hospital after taking acid or something, right? Yeah. No, I want to talk to people who have like gone to visit a dying loved one and they dropped acid while they did it. Crazy. Yeah. Now... By the end of the week, after all this drama, the hospital administrator actually had a heart attack and Jane and Sam were banned from the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) That's embarrassing. Yeah. Now, Sam is really abusive and he 
he like punches her, or slaps her. She gets like a fat lip oh after God. this incident happens or after they get banned. Meanwhile, Zoltan is like in the hospital with meningitis with a 50-50 chance of living. He does survive, but Sam like busts her lip again around the same time so badly that she requires stitches. Fuck. Yeah. Now, around shortly after this uh, in San Francisco, um, they go to San Francisco for a film festival up there. Mansfield and Brody visit the Church of Satan to meet Anton LaVey. Hell yeah. He awards Mansfield a medallion and the title of High Priestess of San Francisco's Church of Satan. The media enthusiastically covers this event and all of the other stuff surrounding it. They identify her as a Satanist and possibly romantically linked with LaVey. The meeting remained um, publicized throughout her life and like throughout the church of Satan's life. Like Carla LaVey confirms in a 1992 interview with Joan Rivers that Mansfield was indeed a practicing Satanist and that she had a a romantic relationship with Anton LaVey. I mean, that's a big get. Yeah. Now here's the, Here's the really crazy part. Now, supposedly before leaving, Sam and Anton had a huge fight after Sam desecrated a relic. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait. Sam des- somehow desecrated some kind of relic. Like I don't a know what. I don't know what the relic was. L- I did look. Like an ancient cow yeah, skull? Exactly. <laughs> Anton was furious and he put a curse on Sam. Uh-oh. Jane told the author at the time that Anton said Sam would meet a tragic and violent death within a year and he would be urging Lucifer to accomplish it. Anton also told, told Jane to get away from Sam or she would suffer for his misdeeds. Now, the author really began distancing himself from Jane at this point. Uh, he said that his one of his final straws was Sam telling him that he just couldn't stop beating the shit out of Jane. She loved it, and she was the biggest masochist he knew. Jane, I mean, so they're in this super fucking abusive relationship. He's like, what the fuck? Like, Sam's basically bragging about how much Jane loves to get beaten. Like, it's just fucking disgusting. So he doesn't want to be around either of them. Yeah, he's like, I'm on my way out of this. Like, this is just too fucked up. But his final, his final straw happens next on June 16th, 1967. Jane catches her daughter, Jane Marie, stealing her diet pills and all hell breaks loose. In the early morning hours, Jane Marie walks into the West LA police station, bruised, beaten, and sobbing, saying that her and her mother had been fighting, which escalated as her mother got drunker before Sam Brody came in and beat her, beat her up with a belt. <gasps> now... She gives like a formal statement to the officers the following morning that implicates her mother in encouraging the abuse. Jane's defense when confronted with her daughter's statement was that she had seduced her daughter's boyfriends and Jane Marie was jealous. That's her defense. (laughs) She asked Coos to testify on her behalf. And that was where he was like, no, like I'm not doing that. Like, fuck you. This is fucked up. Now she Ask him to come to dinner that night. He basically knows it's them trying to convince him to do this. He's already like on his way out, but he's like, sure, I'll fucking go hear what they have to say, but then I'm done here. He goes to this dinner. Um, at some point, he leaves the room where they're talking after dinner, having a drink to like refill his drink. While he's refilling his drink, he hears a blood curling scream. It's Jane. By the way, they're both fucked up the whole time. And they're like, at a restaurant. There. No, they're at their home now. Okay. He went to their house. He comes back to the room where they were. Jane is screaming and crawling up the walls. 
screaming about lizards trying to get her. The author says that he was like, what are you talking about? What lizards? At that point, he hears Sam's voice saying, do it, baby. Do it for those lizards. Those lizards are going to get you and eat your little pussy. No, he doesn't, Desi. And the guy looks over and Sam is jerking. (laughs) Desi. Yes. And he's flicking his tongue like a lizard. This is so meth. This is demented. This is like... This is like when you're like full blown been doing crystal. They were clearly on other stuff. Like, no, this is like a crystal bender. I'm telling you. Yeah. So he's like, uh, bye. <laughs> like, I'm done here. Like, he can't deal. Uh, he, he, at that point, like, Sam calls him the next day. That's the last time he sees Jane. But Sam calls him the next day. He's like, please meet me. They go to a coffee shop. He agrees. He says that when he gets to the coffee shop, that Sam is very upset about the Jane Marie's accusations. And he said that that Jane was egging him on when she was beating the daughter, saying, make her bleed like you do to me. If you love me, you'll hurt her. Make her bleed. Blacken her eyes. Like, Jane is egging him on when he's beating her daughter. Uh, and he, at that point, the guy, um, the writer is like, he starts asking about Tony, her son with Matt. And he's like, why is she always so cruel to him? Because he has seen Jane hit this little boy and like be very abusive and cold to this little boy. And Sam says that in his, in her, in Jane's opinion, it's like, she says things like, this is for your father. So she's like abusive to him because she hates his dad so much. And she's like, don't grow up to be like him. The director. Yes. So she's like abusive to this little child. He's like a two year old, basically. It's awful. I mean, she's like obviously an addict and really fucked up in many ways. Now, days later in a juvenile court, Temporary custody of Jane Marie is granted to her dad's uncle and his wife, Mary. Um, his, I'm sorry. Yeah. They live in LA, so they kind of get this temporary custody. So she's doing good. Um, also, because of this incident, in June of 1967, uh, Mickey Hargitay is granted uh, custody of Mickey Zoltan and Mariska, although they continue to live with Mansfield at this moment. Now, in June of 1967, Mansfield... Um, and Sam and her three kids go to Biloxi, Mississippi for an engagement at Gus Stevens Supper Club. Uh, Tony doesn't go because his dad refuses to let her go. So she goes with the three kids with Hargitay and, and she also takes two chihuahuas. Now, after two appearances on the evening of June 28th, Mansfield, Sam Brody, their driver, and three of her children, the ones I mentioned, left Biloxi after midnight in a Buick Electra 225 going to New Orleans where she was supposed to appear the next day on like a, a good morning type show at about 2:25 AM on highway 90. Uh, the Buick crashes at high speed in the rear of a tractor trailer that had slowed behind a truck spa- um, spraying mosquito fog- fogger, which created like a really bad visibility. If you don't know exactly what happened, basically these trucks are kind of higher up. So if you weren't seeing it, it would basically shave the top, like your trunk would go under the trailer and the, the, the back of the truck would hit the front windshield. So if you're going at a high speed and you just hit this truck because you can't see, it's obviously going to shear off the top of the car. That's what happens. The three uh, adults who are sitting in the front seat die instantly. The children are all asleep in the rear seat and survive with minor oh. injuries. Now, initial reports including this author, like the phone call he gets, is that Mansfield is decapitated. This is not true. Uh, Basically, there's a 
ton of photographs of this crash. You can find them online. They're not particularly gruesome. Uh, if you want to look at them, there's nothing too horrible. But in it, um, there is a blonde-haired wig, what is a wig on the ground. It does have partial uh, part of her scalp. She was wearing the wig at the time. But it, the, the the truck basically sheared the top of her head off, but it, she wasn't decapitated. Uh, her death certificate states the cause of death is crushed skull um, with avulsion of cranium and brain. So it did hit the top of her head, but did not de- decapitate her. Now, after her death, um, whatever, the transportation organization, <laughs> I don't know what it's called, they that's when they require these um, trucks to have this underguard bar now. So a car could never slide under. It stops them. And that's called the Mansfield Bar named after her. Like they literally created this after this accident happened. The death car was saved by a private collector and is now owned by Scott Michaels and is housed at the Dearly Departed Tours and Artifact Museum right across from Hollywood Forever Cemetery, just a few blocks from us. So that car is there. Did you see it? I have never seen it. She was just 34 years old when she died. Oh my God. Yeah. I thought she was older. I don't know why. Wow. I mean, yeah. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> a few things that uh, were sort of like media related about Jane Mansfield. There was a 1980s TV movie about Jane Mansfield starring Lonnie Anderson as Jane Mansfield. Perfect. And Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mickey Hargitay. Also perfect. <laughs> I know. I kind of want to see it. Yeah. I feel like I've seen like an image of it or something. Totally. But that sounds incredible. And one of my favorite songs by Susie and the Banshees, Kiss Them For Me, is about Jane Mansfield. Love that song. It's an amazing song. Uh, obviously, you can re- you can listen to it, and the lyrics are very obviously about her. Um, yeah, and I mentioned earlier, her daughter is on Law & Order. SVU. <laughs> Olivia Benson. We love Mariska Hargitay. Yeah, so that's pretty uh, cool. I mean, I mean, she's in that car crash that killed her mom. That's she, insane. What? A crazy, awful, tragic early childhood event to happen Can to you. Can you imagine being sleeping in the back of that car? And they were like, it wasn't like a time where you wore seatbelts. So they were kind of sleeping on the floor right. of the car. So it ironically probably saved them. Right. That they right. were so far down. Um, yeah. Just a fucking crazy. And that kid had just survived a lion attack. <laughs> Six months later, he's like in this crazy car oh, crash. It's so. The whole thing, the whole thing is so tragic. Yeah. I honestly didn't know about how bad it got for her at the end. Yeah. I didn't know any of those details either. I kind of thought she just, her career went kaput. Same. Yeah. And she was just doing these cheap shows. I didn't realize she had really fallen into a crazy bad relationship and addiction. Uh, Yeah. So that's the Jane Mansfield. Well, thanks for that. Uh, we will be posting lots of pictures on our Instagram page, Hollywood Crime Scene on mm-hmm. Instagram. And you can follow us on Twitter. We don't really tweet on our account there. But you can add us if you want. No, you can at reply us. If you're nice. <laughs> if you want to get a hold of us, though, the best way to get a hold of us is our email, Hollywood Crime Scene at gmail.com. Yeah. Best way to get a hold of us. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.